Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Best of Jack London. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today's story, The King of Maisie May, by Jack London. Walt Masters is not a very large boy, but there is manliness in his makeup, and he himself, although he does not know a great deal that most boys know, knows much that other boys do not know. He has never seen a train of cars or an elevator in his life, and for that matter, he's never once looked upon a cornfield, a plow, a cow, or even a chicken. He has never had a pair of shoes on his feet, nor gone to a picnic or a party, nor talked to a girl. But he has seen the sun at midnight, watched the ice jams on one of the mightiest of rivers, and played beneath the northern lights, the one white child in thousands of square miles of frozen wilderness. Walt has walked all the fourteen years of his life in sun-tanned, moose-hide moccasins, and he can go to the Indian camps and talk big with the men, and trade calico and beads with them for their precious furs. He can make bread without baking powder, yeast, or hops, shoot a moose at three hundred yards, and drive the wild whoop-dogs fifty miles a day on a packed trail. Last of all, he has a good heart, and is not afraid of the darkness and the loneliness of man or beast or thing. His father is a good man, strong and brave, and Walt is growing up like him. Walt was born a thousand miles or so down the Yukon, in a trading post below the ramparts. After his mother died, his father and he came up on the river, step by step, from camp to camp, till now they are settled down on the Maisie May Creek in the Klondike country. Last year they and several others had spent much toil and some time on the Maisie May, and endured great hardships. The creek, in turn, was just beginning to show up its richness and to reward them for their heavy labor. But with the news of their discoveries, strange men began to come and go through the short days and long nights, and many unjust things they did to the men who had worked so long upon the creek. Cy Hartman had gone away on a moose hunt to return and find new stakes driven and his claim jumped. George Lukens and his brother had lost their claims in a like manner, having delayed too long on the way to Dawson to record them. In short, it was an old story, and quite a number of the earnest, industrious prospectors had suffered similar losses. But Walt Master's father had recorded his claim at the start, so Walt had nothing to fear now that his father had gone on a short trip up the White River prospecting for quartz. Walt was well able to stay by himself in the cabin, cook his three meals a day, and look after things. Not only did he look after his father's claim, but he had agreed to keep an eye on the adjoining one of Lauren Hall, who had started for Dawson to record it. Lauren Hall was an old man, and he had no dogs, so he had to travel very slowly. After he had been gone some time, Word came up the river that he had broken through the ice at Rosebud Creek and frozen his feet so badly that he would not be able to travel for a couple of weeks. Then Walt Masters received the news that old Lauren was nearly all right again and about to move on afoot for Dawson as fast as a weakened man could. Walt was worried, however. The claim was liable to be jumped at any moment because of the delay, and a fresh stampede had started in on the Maisie May. He did not like the looks of the newcomers, and one day, when five of them came by with cracked dog teams and the lightest of camping outfits, he could see that they were prepared to make speed, and resolved to keep an eye on them. So he locked up the cabin and followed them, 
being at the same time careful to remain hidden. He had not watched them long before he was sure that they were professional stampeders, bent upon jumping all the claims in sight. Walt crept along the snow at the rim of the creek and saw them change many stakes, destroy old ones, and set up new ones. In the afternoon, with Walt always trailing on their heels, they came back down on the creek, unharnessed their dogs, and went into camp within two claims of his cabin. When he saw them make preparations to cook, he hurried home to get something to eat himself, and then hurried back. He crept so close that he could hear them talking quite plainly, and by pushing the underbrush aside, he could catch occasional glimpses of them. They had finished eating and were smoking around the fire. "'The creek is all right, boys,' a large black-bearded man, evidently the leader, said. "'And I think the best thing we can do is to pull out tonight. "'The dogs can follow the trail. "'Besides, it's going to be moonlight. "'What say you?' "'Yeah, but it's going to be beastly cold,' objected one of the party. "'It's forty below zero now.' "'And sure, can't you keep warm by jumping on the sleds "'and running after the dogs?' cried an Irishman. "'And who wouldn't?' "'The creek's as rich as a United States mint. "'Faith, it's an illegal chance to be getting a run for your money. "'And if you don't run, it's maybe you'll not get the money at all. "'At all.' "'That's it,' said the leader. "'If we can get to Dawson and record, we're rich men, "'and there's no telling who's been sneaking along in our tracks, "'watching us, and perhaps now off to give the alarm. "'The thing for us to do is to rest the dogs a bit "'and then hit the trail as hard as we can. "'What do you say?' Evidently the men had agreed with their leader, for Walt Masters could hear nothing but the rattle of the tin dishes which were being washed. Peering out cautiously, he could see the leader studying a piece of paper. Walt knew what it was at a glance, a list of all the unrecorded claims on Maisie May. Any man could get these lists by applying to the gold commissioner at Dawson. Thirty-two, the leader said, lifting his face to the men. Thirty-two isn't recorded. "'and this is thirty-three. "'Come on, let's take a look at it. "'I saw somebody working on it "'when we came up this morning.' Three of the men went with him, "'leaving one to remain in camp. "'Walt crept carefully after them "'till they came to Lauren Hall's shaft. "'One of the men went down "'and built a fire on the bottom "'to thaw out the frozen gravel, "'while the others built another fire on the dump "'and melted water in a couple of gold pans.' This they poured into a piece of canvas stretched between two logs used by Lauren Hall in which to wash his gold. In a short time, a couple of buckets of dirt were sent up by the men in the shaft, and Walt could see the others grouped anxiously about their leader as he proceeded to wash it. When this was finished, they stared at the broad streak of black sand and yellow gold grains on the bottom of the pan, and one of them called excitedly for the men who had remained in camp to come. Lauren Hall had struck it rich, and his claim was not yet recorded. It was plain that they were going to jump it. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Walt lay in the snow, thinking rapidly. He was only a boy, but in the face of the threatened injustice against old Lauren Hall, he felt that he must do something. He waited and watched, with his mind made up, till he saw the men begin to square up new stakes. Then he crawled away, till out of hearing, and broke into a run for the camp of the Stampeders. Walt's father had taken their own dogs with him prospecting, 
and the boy knew how impossible it was for him to undertake the seventy miles to Dawson without the aid of dogs. Gaining the camp, he picked out, with an experienced eye, the easiest running sled and started to harness up the Stampeder's dogs. There were three teams of six each, and from there he chose ten of the best. Realizing how necessary it was to have a good head dog, he strove to discover a leader amongst them, but he had little time in which to do it, for he could hear the voices of the returning men. By the time the team was in shape and everything ready, the claim jumpers came into sight in an open place not more than a hundred yards from the trail, which ran down the bed of the creek. They cried out to him, but he gave no heed, grabbing up one of their fur sleeping robes, which lay loosely in the snow, and leaping upon the sled. "'Mush! Hi! Mush on!' he cried to the animals, snapping the keen-lashed whip among them. The dogs sprang against the yoke straps, and the sled jerked underway so suddenly as to almost throw him off. Then it curved into the creek, poising perilously on one runner. He was almost breathless with suspense, when it finally righted with a bound and sprang ahead again. The creek bank was high, and he could not see, although he could hear the cries of the men and knew they were running to cut him off. He did not dare to think what would happen if they caught him. He only clung to the sled, his heart beating wildly, and watched the snow rim of the bank above him. Suddenly, over this snow rim came the flying body of the Irishman, who had leaped straight for the sled in a desperate attempt to capture it. But he was an instant too late. Striking on the very rear of it, he was thrown from his feet, backward, into the snow. Yet, with the quickness of a cat, he had clutched the end of the sled with one hand, turned over, and was dragging behind on his breast, swearing at the boy and threatening all kinds of terrible things if he did not stop the dogs. But Walt cracked him sharply across the knuckles with the butt of the dog whip till he let go. It was eight miles from Walt's cabin to the Yukon, eight very crooked miles, for the creek wound back and forth like a snake, lying nuts in itself, as George Lukens had said. And because it was so crooked, the dogs could not get up their best speed, while the sled ground heavily on the side against the curves, now to the right, now to the left. Travelers who had come up and down the Maisie May on foot, with packs on their backs, had declined to go around all the bends, and instead had made shortcuts across the narrow necks of Creek Bottom. Two of his pursuers had gone back to harness the remaining dogs, but the others took advantage of these shortcuts, running on foot, and before he knew it, they had almost overtaken him. Stop! they cried after him. Stop, or we'll shoot! But Walt only yelled the harder at the dogs, and dashed round the bend with a couple of revolver bullets singing after him. At the next bend they had drawn up closer still, and the bullet struck uncomfortably near to him. But at this point the Maisie May straightened out and ran for half a mile as the crow flies. Here the dogs stretched out in their long wolf swing, and the stampeders, quickly winded, slowed down and waited for their own sled to come up. Looking over his shoulder, Walt reasoned that they had not given up the chase for good, and that they would soon be after him again. So he wrapped the fur robe around him to shut out the stinging air, and lay flat on the empty sled, encouraging the dogs, as he well knew how. At last, twisting abruptly between two river islands, he came upon the mighty Yukon sweeping grandly to the north. He could not see from bank to bank, and in the quick, failing twilight it seemed a great white sea of frozen stillness. There was not a sound, save the breathing of the dogs and the churn of the steel-shod sled. No snow had fallen for several weeks, 
and the traffic had packed the main river trail till it was hard and glassy as glare ice. Over this the sled flew along, and the dogs kept the trail fairly well, although Walt quickly discovered that he had made a mistake in choosing the leader. As they were driven in single file, without reins, he had to guide them by his voice, and it was evident that the head dog had never learned the meaning of gee and haw. He hugged the inside of the curves too closely, often forcing his comrades behind him into the soft snow, while several times he thus capsized the sled. There was no wind, but the speed at which he traveled created a bitter blast, and with the thermometer down to forty below, this bit through fur and flesh to the very bones. Aware that if he remained constantly upon the sled, he would freeze to death, and knowing the practice of Arctic travelers, Walt shortened up one of the lashing thongs, and whenever he felt chilled, seized hold of it, jumped off, and ran behind till warmth was restored. Then he would climb on and rest till the process had to be repeated. Looking back, he could see the sled of his pursuers, drawn by eight dogs, rising and falling over the ice hummocks like a boat in a seaway. The Irishman and the black-bearded leader were with it, taking turns and running and riding. Night fell, and in the blackness of the first hour or so, Walt toiled desperately with his dogs. On account of the poor lead dog, they were constantly floundering off the beaten track into the soft snow, and the sled was as often riding on its side or top as it was in the proper way. This work and strain tried his strength sorely. Had he not been in such a haste, he could have avoided much of it, but he feared the stampeders would creep up in the darkness and overtake him. However, he could hear them occasionally yelling to their dogs, and knew from the sounds that they were coming up very slowly. When the moon rose, he was off sixty mile, and Dawson was only fifty miles away. He was almost exhausted, and breathed a sigh of relief as he climbed on the sled again. Looking back, he saw his enemies had crawled up within four hundred yards. At this space they remained, a black speck of motion on the white river beast. Strive as they would, they could not shorten this distance, and strive as he would, he could not increase it. He had now discovered the proper lead dog, and knew he could easily run away from them if he could only change the bad leader for the good one. But this was impossible, for a moment's delay at the speed they were running would bring the men behind upon him. When he got off the mouth of Rosebud Creek, just as he was topping a rise, the ping of a bullet on the ice beside him, and the report of a gun, told him that they were this time shooting at him with a rifle. And from then on, as he cleared the summit of each ice jam, he stretched flat on the leaping sled till the rifle shot from the rear warned him that he was safe till the next ice jam. Now it is very hard to lie on a moving sled, jumping and plunging and yawing like a boat before the wind, and to shoot through the deceiving moonlight at an object four hundred yards away on another moving sled performing equally wild antics. So it is not to be wondered at that the black-bearded man did not hit him. After several hours of this, during which, perhaps, a score of bullets had struck about him, their ammunition began to give out, and their fire slackened. They took greater care, and only whipped a shot at him in the most favorable opportunities. He was also beginning to leave them behind, the distance slowly increasing to six hundred yards. Lifting clear on the crest of a great jam off Indian River, Walt Masters met his first accident. A bullet sang past his ears and struck the bad lead dog. The poor brute plunged in a heap, with the rest of the team on top of him. Like a flash, Walt was by the leader. Cutting the traces with his hunting knife, 
he dragged the dying animal to one side and straightened out the team. He glanced back. The other sled was coming up like an express train. With half the dogs still over their traces, he cried, "'Mush on!' and leaped upon the sled just as the pursuing team dashed abreast of him. The Irishman was just preparing to spring for him. They were so sure they had him that they did not shoot. When Walt turned fiercely upon them with his whip, he struck at their faces, and men must save their faces with their hands, so there was not shooting just then. Before they could recover from the hot rain of blows, Walt reached out from his sled, catching their wheel-dog by the foreleg in mid-spring, and throwing him heavily. This brought the whole team to a snarl, capsizing the sled, and tangling his enemies up beautifully. Away Walt flew, the runners of his sled fairly screaming as they bounded over the frozen surface. And what had seemed an accident proved to be a blessing in disguise. The proper lead dog was now to the fore, and he stretched out on the trail and whined with joy as he jerked his comrades along. By the time he reached Ainsley's Creek, seventeen miles from Dawson, Walt had left his pursuers, a tiny speck, far behind. At Monte Cristo Island, he could no longer see them. And at Swede Creek, just as daylight was silvering the pines, he ran plump into the camp of old Lauren Hall. Almost as quick as it takes to tell it, Lauren had his sleeping furs rolled up, and he joined Walt on the sled. They permitted the dogs to travel more slowly, as there was no sign of the chase in the rear, and just as they pulled up at the gold commissioner's office in Dawson, Walt, who had kept his eyes open to the last, fell asleep. And because of what Walt Masters did on this night, the men of the Yukon have become very proud of him, and always speak of him now as the King of the Maisie May. We hope you enjoyed The King of the Maisie May by Jack London. More brand new stories to come. More brand new stories to come at 1001 Best of Jack London. We always appreciate reviews.